Recovery Elevator, Episode 1. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator, Episode 1. I am your host, Paul. If you haven't listened to Episode 0, it's about an 8-minute intro to what this podcast is all about. I made a stark confession, which I'll say again right now, I am an alcoholic. At the time of this recording on February 19th, 2015 at 7.47 a.m., according to my recovery elevator sobriety tracker, I have not had a drink for 165 days, and oh my gosh, has it already been a long journey. I had the idea for the recovery elevator podcast months before my very first day of sobriety, and how come it's taken me 165 days to finally hit record and make this very first episode? And in fact, this first episode probably won't even be released for another couple weeks. Is because, well, early sobriety is a bitch. Pardon my language. Yes, early sobriety is extremely difficult. And my goal in the first 72 hours, let alone make a podcast, learn new programs, website hosting, all the above, which was completely foreign to me, goals were simple like, eat a healthy breakfast, wake up before noon, go out for a walk, walk your dog. Those were goals in early sobriety. And I slowly added more tasks to my plate. Now, I was ready to start recording these episodes around day 30, but I wanted to get a little bit more time underneath my belt before we launched. So let's get into it. While listening to this podcast, I want to stress one thing. Please listen to the similarities and not the differences. Now, this is very important. The very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that I attended, I did exactly the opposite. I listened to the differences. It went around the room and I heard stories of divorce, bankruptcy, DUIs, jail time, prison time, and even a death due to alcohol. And it was one of the best moments of my drinking career because I came to the brilliant idea that I was not an alcoholic. Had I listened to the similarities and not the differences, I would have saved months and years of pain, wreckage, all the above. Another important thing to remember while listening to this podcast is I want you to listen out of hope, not out of fear. What I mean by that is there are too many things sold or pushed down our throats based on fear. We need to vote for this politician because the terror level just was raised to a critical orange or you need this product because if not, the consequences are too drastic for you to face. No, I want you to listen to this podcast out of hope. And if you do decide to make the decision to quit drinking, you need to make that decision out of hope for a better life. Before I give a brief introduction and background about myself, I want to state this podcast is not about me. This podcast is about you. And even if this podcast only helps one person stay sober, it has been a success. And if that one person is me, big success. Again, this podcast is not about me or my story. However, I have gone through it all, and hopefully you can learn from some of my experiences, successes, and failures, so you don't make the same mistakes yourself. I'm 32 years old, and I currently live in southwest Montana, which in my opinion is the most beautiful part of the country and probably the world. I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, where I moved to Vail slash Edwards, Colorado at the age of 12. I went to college in Orange, California at Chapman University, where about two months before I graduated, I had the brilliant idea to go to Spain and buy and operate a bar. So I moved home after college, saved $28,000, borrowed about 12 more from friends and family, and went to Spain and bought a bar. Now, 
those three years were the best and the worst times of my life. Looking back, it was a blessing. I was in complete denial of having a drinking problem at the time. I figured I'm 24 years old. I own a bar. I should be blacking out six to seven nights a week. And that's what I did. I partied my ass off and I was blacking out every night of the week and I was killing myself. So again, I look at that as a blessing because it completely precipitated the alcoholic process with me. I guarantee it, I would still be in my 30s, my 40s, and 50s dealing with alcoholism or being still in denial of my drinking problem. But what happened in Spain, it sped the process up. It was the pedal to the metal for three years, and there was no denying the fact that I had a drinking problem. After basically walking away from the bar in Granada, Spain, due to the fact I was completely killing myself due to alcohol consumption, I moved back home to Colorado, and I thought the geographical cure would be just that, a cure. I took an airplane across the Atlantic, and I thought my drinking problems would stop in Spain. I'm sure we've all tried this, but that's not the case. I didn't drink quite as much, but when I drank, I still couldn't stop, and I blacked out almost every time I drank. And then I tried another geographical cure while I was inside the United States. I decided to move to Washington and go to grad school. I moved to Seattle, Washington in 2009, applied to grad school at University of Washington, was accepted into a program which would start in May of 2010. And on December 31st, 2009, I decided it was time to stop drinking. So of course, on New Year's, I got extremely wasted, made some poor decisions with the opposite sex, and stopped drinking. On January 1st, 2010, I went to the Northgate Mall in Seattle, wonderful place, to the Barnes & Noble and picked a random book about alcohol off the shelf in the self-help section. And luckily, it was a phenomenal book, which really helped me in early sobriety. It's called Beyond the Influence, Understanding and Defeating Alcoholism by Catherine Ketchum and William F. Asbury. There will be a link to this in the first episode show notes on the website www.recoveryelevator.com. So I'm sitting there listening to the Owl City soundtrack for some reason in 2010 that was really popular, reading this book about alcohol, and I'm in my first 72 hours, which is miserable. I'm sweating, I'm shaking, I can barely read two sentences without losing focus. It was a terrible time, and we'll get into more of the 72 hours later in further episodes and my story of how I actually sobered up, but that's basically the gist of it. And I finished grad school, and then an internship took me to southwestern Montana, where I currently am today, and don't have any plans of leaving anytime soon. Like I said, Montana is a majestic, phenomenal place. Now, you're probably doing your own timeline in your head and saying, wait a second, you've been sober 165 days, but in 2010, on January 1st, you sobered up? I'm not a mathematician, but those dates don't add up. You are correct. I had a plan to quit drinking, which was simply just that, to stop drinking. And I maintained that plan for almost two and a half years. And like I talked earlier in this episode, I went to my very first AA meeting. I listened to the differences, not the similarities, walked out of the meeting and was ecstatic. I was not an alcoholic. I had not had any DUIs. I have never been to jail due to alcohol, any of that stuff, the wreckage, yet keyword yet. So my brilliant conclusion was I can't be an alcoholic. 
And I think it was like two or three days later, I was drinking again. And after I got home from the bars, it was 2.30 or 3 a.m. The bars were closed. The gas stations were closed. You could not legally purchase alcohol. And next to my computer was a bottle of rubbing alcohol and a bottle of hydrogen peroxide. And I was Googling which one I could drink to continue drinking. And both of them are extremely dangerous to drink. After reading that I probably would end up in the emergency room, I decided not to drink, but it was a tough decision. I almost drank rubbing alcohol and hydrogen peroxide to keep my buzz going. I'm pretty sure I only drank about two or three more times after the rubbing alcohol Googling incident. When I came to the conclusion again, like, all right, you probably had the right decision to quit drinking in 2010. And I think I made it another eight to 10 months before I was in a relationship. And I was like, you know, I've gone 10 months. I'm not an alcoholic. Again, my mind played tricks on me saying I was not an alcoholic. I cannot think of another disease that tells you mentally that you don't have a disease. It is the craziest thing, but that's how it is with alcoholism. It's insanity. And for two and a half years, for the eight months after that, that I was sober, I simply brushed it under the rug. Of course, people ask me, why don't you drink? And I wouldn't straight up say, oh, I'm an alcoholic because in society, we're basically taught not to say those things. I would say, oh, you know, I, I don't drink. I just made a decision and, you know, my life is better without it if people ask. So like I said, I just swept it under the rug. No big deal. But where I'm at right now, it is a huge deal. This is my number one priority in life to stay sober because if I don't, Nothing cool happens. I will probably end up in jail or I will commit suicide and it will all be over. Before we get into some easy diagnostics, I'm sure you're all wondering, well, when are we going to get into deciding if I'm an alcoholic or not? I mean, it's got to be like a yes or no answer, a red light, green light type deal. Let me tell you about your options, which I firmly believe. Number one, you could sober up will not be easy but that's an option number two you will be forced to sober up what i mean by that is incarceration after multiple duis after crimes robbery theft killing somebody behind the wheel you will be locked up and forced to sober up and the third option unfortunately which a lot of people experience is the bitter end and death. I know that sounds grim. And I mentioned earlier, don't listen to this podcast out of fear. But those to me, I believe are the facts. You have three options. You can sober up, you can be locked up, forced to sober up, or you can ride this roller coaster where the wheels are coming off to the bitter end and to death. Now let's get into the fun part, diagnostics or a diagnosis of am I an alcoholic? Do I have a drinking problem? Do I have a propensity to become an alcoholic? Yes, here's the fun part. And believe it or not, it's really quite simple. It will go through some tests where you answer yes or no in multiple check boxes and then the internet will calculate a score and if you get in this range, then you're an alcoholic or you're not. But it's really quite simple. Listen up. Here we go. 
I personally cannot diagnose you as an alcohol. If you're listening to this podcast saying, well, well, Paul will tell me if I'm an alcoholic or not. That is not the case. I've got friends who I think might be alcoholics, but they are the only people that can self-diagnose themselves as alcoholics. Keep that in mind. All right. Like I said, we can do some crazy tests with multiple choice answers, but it's really simple. Here are a couple questions to ask yourself. Number one, would your life be better without alcohol? Now think about that for a second. Do you think people without a drinking problem ever ask themselves that question? And again, the fact you're asking yourself, do I have a drinking problem, is a pretty good indication you already do have a drinking problem. Because just this, do you think normal drinkers ever ask themselves, hmm, do I have a drinking problem? No, they've been responsibly drinking their entire lives. Sure, maybe they've spent a little bit too much money or they got a little too drunk at the company Christmas party, but the mere fact that you're asking yourself, do I have a drinking problem, is probably your answer. I know, it sucks to hear, and I'm sorry, you could still deny this for a couple more years or write it to the end, but you may think back 10 years from now and be like, darn it, that Paul guy was right. Because I would always ask myself, I would say, I think I might be drinking too much or I might be an alcoholic. And that was my answer right there. And I've had those thoughts junior year of college, senior year of college in Spain before. I mean, that was my simple answer. So let's get started with an actual diagnosis test where you can answer yes and no. We'll get a score at the end. This is from the National Council on Alcohol and Drug Dependence. And there are thousands of these online. And to tell you the truth, they're all pretty accurate. <laughs> I remember taking one of these tests my junior, I think my junior year in college. And of course, my score said, you are an alcoholic, which is true. I am an alcoholic. But at that time, I was like, wait a second. I'm a junior in college. I'm supposed to be partying my ass off. I can't be an alcoholic. So let's check this out. And again, you can do this test yourself. There will be a link to this website on recoveryelevator.com, show notes, episode one. So we're going to do this together. And you can also mark yes or no in your head on a piece of paper. Number one, do you drink heavily when you are disappointed, under pressure, or have had a quarrel with someone? Well, I drink all the time, so I probably incorporated those. Can you handle more alcohol now than when you first started to drink? Second yes in a row. And I'm circling these as I'm going down. Have you ever been unable to remember part of the previous evening, even though your friends say you didn't pass out? Three yeses. Number four. When drinking with other people, do you try to have a few extra drink when others won't know about it? Yep, done that. Do you sometimes feel uncomfortable if alcohol is not available? Eh, you know, it'd be tough to go to it. Yep, that's a yes. Are you more in a hurry to get your first drink of the day than you used to be? Yes. Do you sometimes feel a little guilty about your drinking? Guess what? In Spanish, that would be C. Has a family member or close friend expressed concern or complained about your drinking? Believe it or not, this one is a no. And I will get into that later in different podcasts. Have you been having memory blackouts recently due to drinking? That's a hell yes. Do you often want to continue drinking after your friends say they've had enough? A definite yes. 
When you're sober, do you sometimes regret things you did or said while drinking? Eh, yes. Have you tried switching brands or drinks or following different plans to control your drinking? Mm, you can guess on that one. That's a yes. Have you sometimes failed to keep promises you made to yourself about controlling or cutting down on your drinking? Darn it. There's definitely a pattern in the yes column going on here. Have you ever had a DWI or DUI drinking under the influence of alcohol violation or legal problem related to your drinking? Let's see. Do you try to avoid family or close friends while you are drinking? Darn it. That's another yes. Are you having more financial work, school, and or family problems as a result of your drinking? So far, I've only got one, one in the no category. All right, number 18. Has your physician ever advised you to cut down on your drinking? This one would actually be a no. I'm pretty good at going into doctor's offices and not telling the truth about my drinking. Do you eat very little or irregularly during the periods when you are drinking? Yep, can't eat when I'm binge drinking. Do you sometimes have the shakes in the morning and find that it helps to have a little drink slash hair of the dog, tranquilizer, and medication of some kind? Yep, that's a no-brainer. Have you recently noticed that you can't drink as much as you used to? I'm going to circle yes and no on that one because at the end of a long binge, especially in Spain, I was blacking out sooner and sooner. So I black out, would normally take 15 to 20 drinks. I'd be blacking out after like six or seven drinks, which I think I'm going to do more research into this later. It's basically your liver being overloaded, what I believe. Do you sometimes stay drunk for several days at a time? I'm going to go yes and no. I don't think because my body couldn't filter the alcohol out, but I would drink for several days at a time. After periods of drinking, do you sometimes see or hear things that aren't there? Wow. I think they're referring to visual and audible hallucinations and yeah, I'm gonna hit yes. After coming back from Spain, I had audible hallucinations for two to three weeks and it was actually the Braveheart soundtrack. I went to bed to the Braveheart soundtrack drunk for about a year straight and I heard the Braveheart soundtrack where I would turn around and be like, well, all right, where, who pressed play? So I did have audible hallucinations. Have you ever gone to anyone for help for and about your drinking? That's a yes. Do you ever feel depressed or anxious before, during, or after periods of heavy drinking? Yes. Number 26. Have any of your blood relatives ever had a problem with alcohol? That's a yes. So right now, out of 26 questions, there are only four in the no category, and two of those four are both in the yes and the no category. So let's test the results. I'm going to hit submit, and let's see what we got here. I already know what it's going to say, but just for, for shits and giggles, let's, let's check it out. Am I an alcoholic? My self-score, 22. And here's how the scoring works. If a no is scored, you get a zero. And if a yes is scored, you get one point. The score ref reflects the total number of questions that were answered yes. A score of two, I repeat two or more, indicate you may be at a greater risk for alcoholism or to be an alcoholic. If you answered yes between two and eight questions, then you should consider arranging a personal meeting with a professional who has experience in the evaluation of alcohol problems. Now, if you answered yes to more than eight questions, you may have a serious level of alcohol-related problems requiring immediate attention and possibly treatment. Holy shit. 
You should seek professional guidance. Check. You should consider contacting the NCADD affiliate office nearest you. Your life is going down the tubes. I actually made that last sentence up. It doesn't say that on the sheet. But according to that, I am not only an alcoholic, but a raging alcoholic. And the fact that I can even drive a car, live under a roof, pay my bills is a mere godsend and a miracle according to this test. Like I said, these tests are everywhere, but they're really basically pretty accurate. And what it boils down to is if you're asking yourself, I think I might have a drinking problem or do I have a drinking problem? Remind yourself that normal drinkers don't ask themselves that question. It's really that simple. Now, we've reached the segment of our show where I will be interviewing a guest who is in early sobriety or is thinking about sobering up, and they are going to share their story with us. For my very first guest on the Recovery Elevator podcast, one would think, I would send out several emails to celebrities in sobriety and get a well-known guest, but no, I want just an average alcoholic. And you might hear a story and be like, wow, that's incredible. How did you find that person? Well, you know, basically all the stories different in their own means, they're all the same. I wanted to interview just average Americans or average alcoholics, pretty much any alcoholic that I can find. And I could do a podcast that would run every single day for 365 days of just alcoholics in the small town that I live in. So let's get into it. In Recovery Elevator Nation, I am excited to welcome our next guest to the podcast, Gabrielle. Gabrielle, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks. How are you, Paul? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's just dive right into this. How long have you been sober, Gabrielle? Uh, I've been sober, let's see, um, it'll be 18 months tomorrow. 18 months tomorrow. That's a year and a half. Congratulations. That is, <laughs> yeah. that is awesome. I am Thank you. almost on six months myself and cannot wait to get six months, but 18 months, that's awesome. Let's talk about the name Recovery Elevator. When did you realize you had a problem and when did you realize that it's time to stop riding the elevator down and you decided to get off? Well, I realized that I had a problem probably when I was 19, 20, and 23 now. And that's when I was really, I was heavily smoking pot um, every day. Not necessarily drinking every day, but um, I was smoking pot pretty heavily every day. And I started to realize like, gosh, I don't know what I like to do. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I like about myself because I was in this, I was perma-stoned. Basically, I was in this perpetual state of being high or drunk or a combination of the both always. I mean, it was my first order of business in the morning to load a bowl or figure out how I was going to be able to load a bowl. Uh, and that's what my life revolved around. So I decided to get sober when I was 21 and yeah, I mean, it was basically just that, that I had no idea who I was, that I didn't know what I liked about myself. And I was in this downward spiral of not being able to function, first of all, without being high or drunk and not knowing what to do when I was functioning. I couldn't get anything done. I couldn't maintain any sort of relationships, you know, friendly or otherwise. Yeah, I was 21 and 
decided that I could keep digging or I could stop. So here I am. Keep digging. I like it. And that goes along with the elevator. You can just keep on riding that thing down to the very bottom. I want you to describe your drinking habits and how much you drank. And you can tie that in with how much pot you smoke too. And okay. also talk about some ways you attempted to possibly regulate, such as switching from tequila to beer or maybe no drinks before 5 a.m. Okay. No, 5 p.m. will go. <laughs> 5 p.m. <laughs> I mean, anything goes, really. Yeah, but... really. It doesn't even matter what the time is. <laughs> My drinking habits. You know, I started, I started drinking um, regularly. Well, I guess. My first drink was when I was eight, and then the first time I got drunk was when I was 12. And from then on, I really had a fascination with anything that affected me from the head up or the neck up. I started drinking regularly when I was about 16, and that to me meant uh, drinking as much as I could on the weekends. And then when I got to college, I was drinking, you know, three or four times a week, and then I discovered pot. I was smoking regularly, meaning every day, by the time I was 19, and then from 19 to 20, I was smoking pot all day, every day, and drinking in the evenings. And as far as regulating goes, I never really thought of myself as having a problem before I was smoking pot every day. So I tried to stop smoking cold turkey only really once. And that lasted for four days until one of my girlfriends was like, oh, I wanted to smoke with you today. And then, you know, all bets were off. So, and then as far as drinking goes, tried to just regulate it to the weekends or I'm not going to drink before, you know, 5 p.m., something like that. You know, in the Montana summers, you got to drink outside. So I never really seriously tried to regulate it until I decided that this was something that I wanted to do and that I wanted to be sober. I don't know, you know, that um, that question's kind of hard for me. And that was hard for me when I came, I, I joined Alcoholics Anonymous and I came into the rooms and people talked a lot about their regulating and that's not something that I could really relate to. And I guess I'm lucky for that. I didn't have to go through that struggle of trying to moderate because I was more of a go big or go home kind of girl. Gabrielle, you yeah. mentioned something which is similar to regulation. It's more of a justification. Listeners, if you have never been to Montana or Montana in the summertime, it is something to check out because the winters are long. And if it's a nice summer Montana day, it, people drink. It's what we do up here. And I hear you on that one. So Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me if your drinking or your smoking impacted relationships with your family, with friends at work, with a spouse? I don't think you're married at age 21. Or did anybody ever tell you that you might drink too much? Uh, nobody ever told me that they thought that I might drink too much. Um, there were a couple instances with family. I come from an Italian family and we like to drink. So there were a couple instances when we were drinking and, you know, somebody would approach one of my parents and say, Gabrielle's drunk like she might want to slow it down or something like that as far as my family goes I I kept a fair distance I don't think anybody was really aware of how much that I drank or anything like that my relationships with 
you know, my friends and family were very superficial. And the second that they got, if we gained any kind of intimacy, they would see my behavior as far as, and not even necessarily when I was drunk, but my, my sober behavior too was just crazy, you know, like manipulative and angry and hateful. You know, I was, I was always the victim and it's really hard to be friends or to be close with somebody like that. I ended up pushing a lot of people away and the people that I did have left over when I finally made the decision to get sober, you know, my family always stuck by me, but I don't think they ever really understood how far down the elevator shaft I had gotten. Any friends that I may have had, they were really just acquaintances or people who I drank and used with regularly because that's what we had in common. And, um, that was sort of a common understanding of ours is like, okay, I'm going to be pretty unpleasant until we get higher drunk Mm -hmm. and then it'll be okay. I always did well in school, I guess. Well, I did get fired once (laughs) because I couldn't get out of bed on time. Um, I was working an early morning job, but I, I couldn't get out of bed because I was either, well, I was hungover. And so I did get fired once and I pitched a fit had a lot of meltdowns when I was drinking because um, I just couldn't deal with life. But I always got good grades. You know, I made sure that things looked good on the outside so that I could maintain this kind of lifestyle. And I don't have to do that anymore. So that's pretty cool. That's really cool. Now tell me, Gabrielle, what is it like in the first 24 hours, the first 72 hours, the first week, month, and year of sobriety, when you first decided to put that drink down and when did that obsession and craving for the drink disappear or did it ever? First 24 hours, and this could be different for everybody, obviously, but I, I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I felt so at home there. I felt like there's a group of people who relate to me. And I had never felt that before. I I was always a person who felt pretty alone. And so I found a group of people who related to me with a solution for this disease that we have. So um, they call that the pink cloud. And I was on the pink cloud for probably the first week or so. I was feeling really good. Like, this is the decision that I want to make. And I'm happy with it. As far as any, you know, physical manifestations of sobriety, because I was smoking pot so regularly, you know, that's that's the reason that I was eating, basically. And for the first week or so, I had a hard time stomaching food. I felt really nauseous after I ate. You know, the mental obsession, of course, I wanted it. You know, it was my crutch, um, marijuana and alcohol. But I, I was so steadfast in my decision that I could have a better life, that that's what kept me going through that first week. After about 10 days, that's when I started really missing my crutch. And gosh, I don't really know what kept me sober through that time. I think it was just made acquaintances in the program and, you know, a big part of being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous is being in touch with other alcoholics. And so I was in touch with other alcoholics. I also made sure to um, tell my friends and my family immediately after I made the decision to get sober 
to create a sort of accountability for myself. So I couldn't say to them, hey, I want to get drunk. And they're like, okay, great. The friends that I've maintained to this point are really respectful of my decision to be sober. So that's been helpful. You know, the first month I was just waiting for that 30-day chip that um, gives you that instant gratification that a a drink would. You know, sometimes that's what keeps me sober now. And just remembering how far I've come and how much better my life has gotten since I've put down the drink. I mean, getting sober at 21 has made me question a lot of the times like, gosh, how much do I have left in me? You know, how, how much further could I have gone with this? I didn't face a lot of legal trouble. I mean, I faced enough legal trouble to make the decision to get sober, but my life wasn't in shambles. I had a car, I had a job, I had a house. On several occasions, I've wondered to myself, you know, like, was that just a phase? And could I go back to drinking and things like that? But just seeing the way that my life is going now compared to where it was going then, I mean, it's not even a question of which one is better. And I'm so happy to be where I am today. Gabrielle, I know you're going to have a lot of success with a healthy recovery because of one word you said, and that was accountability. When you immediately got sober, you told friends and family. Now, listeners, if you don't imply this action when you first get sober, you will drastically decrease your chances of staying sober. And here's what I mean. I went to a bachelor party in 2010, and I fired off an email about two months before saying, hey guys, I won't be drinking in Vegas. And I was terrified to send this email. I remember my finger was hovering over the send button. And finally I sent it. And it was the best thing I ever did because what I found out is, sure, I had a lot of superficial friends, but I had some really key close friends. When I was in Vegas, they would get me soda waters, they would get me Red Bulls, my family knew about it. That's what you gotta do when you first get sober. So that is key advice. Gabrielle. Now, Gabrielle, did you have a resource in early sobriety that was essential to your recovery? For example, a book, routine, meditation, spirituality practices? Did you exercise? Was it close friends or family? Can you tell us more about that? Well, when I first got sober, I was just so thrilled to be a part of the Alcoholics Anonymous community where I felt like I belonged. So I attended meetings regularly. Um, I got a sponsor right away, which is somebody who helps you stay sober and help you work through the steps to stay sober. I kept in close contact with her and with some other people who I felt like I could relate to in the rooms. I immediately got a big book from Alcoholics Anonymous and I, you know, read through that in a day because it felt like you know, this story of my life. Then I slowly but surely started working the steps with my sir and I I developed a relationship with a higher power, which is something that I never thought that I would do. And something also that I think keeps a lot of people away from Alcoholics Anonymous is this idea of God. You know, I came into the program a a pretty staunch atheist and I thought all this God talk was gonna scare me off. But when I realized that it's a higher power of my own understanding, and that could mean the universe, that could mean the wind, that could mean whatever has greater power than you, the ocean, or, you know, a lot of people use a sober group of people because that sober group of people have a hell of a lot more power than you do when you're drunk. Yeah, that idea of a higher power is so flexible, and that's something that that kept me around. 
I, I didn't really change a lot about my routine when I got sober because I had a job and because I was in school, but I added in regularly attending meetings, calling my sponsor and being accountable into my routine. And that's catch me sober a lot of the time. Now, listeners, I want to remind you, this podcast has zero affiliation with Alcoholics Anonymous. However, you will hear a common theme that Alcoholics Anonymous does work. And I could not agree with Gabrielle more. I feel right at home when I go to AA meetings. And one last question, Gabrielle. It's important to take it one day at a time in your recovery, but what is your plan starting today after we hang up on this call for a healthy recovery in the future? Oh, for a healthy recovery in the future. Well, actually, when I get off the phone with you, I am I'm making some appetizers for a party that I'm going to tonight to celebrate a friend's 10-year anniversary of her sobriety date. I am staying in touch with other alcoholics, which is something that's been really important to me, just to be to feel understood and to feel heard by somebody. You know, before I got sober, I would spout off to people about all of the crazy that was happening in my brain. And I don't think anybody who wasn't alcoholic could ever understand or knew what to say to me. So being in touch with other alcoholics and regularly attending AA meetings to continuing to work, you know, just be open and honest with people. I think what you were saying about you know, being accountable to people and um, really important and say, hi, I'm Gabrielle. I'm an alcoholic. That means that I can't drink and I won't drink because it's not pretty and we won't be friends after tonight if I drink with you. Being accountable, being honest, staying away from situations where I would usually drink or use. And that for me means sort of entering the world because when I was drinking and using, especially towards the end, a lot of it was alone. Being a part of the world and engaging in <laughs> social activities, I think that might be a trigger for a lot of people to drink. But for me, it creates a sense of responsibility that I need to show up and I need to be there and I need to be my best self. So that's my plan for a healthy recovery. With accountability, honestness, and working with other alcoholics, I think you'll be just fine if you keep that up. And thank you so much for joining us on the Recovery Elevator podcast. I'm sure many listeners will find value in what you said. Thank you so much. Have an awesome day, Gabrielle. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Now we have arrived to our sometimes comical diagnostical section of the podcast. You might be an alcoholic if... Now, some of these are funny, but some of them do hold water and may be applicable to you. And if you have something you'd like to contribute in this section, email us at info at recoveryelevator.com and we'll get it said. You might be an alcoholic if you've ever said, oh, I can control this. I can, I, I, I got this. You might be an alcoholic if you've ever flipped a coin to determine if you're going to drink or not. And if you've kept flipping that coin until you get the outcome you desire. You might be an alcoholic if you tried quitting on January 1st, but needed the hair of the dog to make it through that day. Now this one's confusing, but hold some water. You might be an alcoholic if you've ever gone 30 days or at any duration of time without drinking and then told yourself, wow, I just went a week or a month or however long and without drinking, so I must not be an alcoholic. 
and you might be an alcoholic if your doctor finds traces of blood in your alcohol stream. Now, don't forget to track your sobriety. Recovery Elevator has an app on Android and iPhone called Recovery Elevator, or just search for Sobriety Tracker. It's 99 cents. Thank you so much for listening. You can do this.